0: Hello everybody, welcome to Becoming Better, the podcast dedicated to helping you become a better human being. I'm the host of the show, Chris Bailey. This is episode number 50, wow, 50, Hooked on Salt, Sugar, and Fat. It is an honor to welcome Michael Moss, to the podcast. Michael is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter, and he's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Salt, Sugar, Fat. He's now out with a new book called Hooked Food Free Will and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Do yourself a favor right now. Pick this one up. I loved this book, maybe even more than Salt, Sugar, Fat, which I highly recommend as well. Uh, Both are linked in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Like some of you, I read a lot of books about food as somebody who has had a lifelong passion with food, you could say. Uh, But this one takes the cake as being one of the most illuminating of all of them that I've read to date. And I'm confident you'll find the book as fascinating as I have. Welcome to the podcast, Michael Moss. Michael, how are you? I'm really good, thank you. I'm sorry, we had to move you inside. The birds were chirping outside, the, the dogs <laughs> were playing. It sounded like a lovely forest scene, almost, like paradise. Uh, I And unbelievably, I'm in Brooklyn, New
1: York, where you're getting that forest scene. Uh, it was a lovely day. It will <laughs> be a lovely day, but it's, but it's really great talking to you, even inside.
0: Yeah, you too, man. I, I, I want to kick off our chat, but I loved the book. First of all, I am am hooked on on this book for lack of a Mm -hmm. better term. Um, I I read the whole thing in two days. And I think anybody listening to this right now uh, will find it equally captivating and compelling. And I want to kick it off by talking about just how addictive food can be. Uh, To give folks a bit of background in researching this book, you spoke with researchers who study drug addiction, uh, chemists who work for processed food companies. You poured through uh, troves of internal documents as well. Uh, I'm curious, at the end of the day, after connecting all of what you learned in this deep dive, do you think that processed food is addictive?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, if you had asked me that 5 years ago before I started this, I would have thought comparing Twinkies to heroin was nuts. But <laughs> I'm now absolutely convinced that in many ways these these products in the grocery store, and it's not just kind of the snack foods, it's so much of the so much of the center part of the grocery store what I like to call fast groceries these days or ultra-processed foods are actually in kind of some ways even more problematic than, than cigarettes, alcohol, and, and, and drugs. And the, and the main way um, that that happens is that the industry has discovered how to tap into our basic instincts, our deepest basic instincts, mm. to make their products um, you know, not only desirable, it would make us want more and more of them and sort of exploit those basic instincts of ours. So, so, so I think what makes them so much more powerful, even the drugs, is that they're using us as unwitting conspirators um, against ourselves to completely rob us of free will and wow. willpower when it comes to these products.
0: Hmm. Yeah, something else I found fascinating in the book, you know, natural and artificial flavors is something on the ingredient list that we see a lot of. And you mentioned a whole industry, which is brand new to me and I'm sure would be new to a lot of people of uh, flavor houses. And you illustrate, and I have the book in front of me here, um, that you illustrate these companies by giving the example of pumpkin spice, that that lovely, cozy spice that would be at home on the, on the back patio with all the birds chirping. And you <laughs> write, quote, in our kitchen cabinets, pumpkin spice is made of cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, and maybe ginger. Not so in processed food. Its pumpkin spice is simulated through the development of as many as 80 elements. Um, uh, This idea of a flavor house, what didn't even occur to me that such a thing might exist. Uh, I'm curious what you learned about this industry in particular and how they work.
1: Right, so, so these are chemical laboratories. You walk in and there's, you know, mountains or walls of, of glassware, right, that they're mm-hmm. using to to mix and match and reformulate. Their job, um, by and large, is to sort of come up with tastes and flavors and smells um, that, that aren't necessarily natural but that mimic the natural flavors in food. Um, and, 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 yeah, when I first went in, I was really kind of focused on just kind of like Looking at that creature called pumpkin pie spice, which is like <laughs> all over the store and in, in, in the fall, right? Yeah. But, but then something really kind of surprising happened as as I spent time with the flavorists at this one particular chemical house in, in New Jersey. Um, we were talking about kind of the things that they do for industry and what makes them so valuable to the to the processed food industry, and and it's not just their ability to kind of magically whip up these these flavors that 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 from, you know, from from chemicals that 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 mimic that mimic sort of natural flavors. It's it's their ability to kind of reformulate products in order to lower the price. Because mm. one of the things that the companies have figured out is that we by nature are drawn to food that's cheap, that's inexpensive. Historically that meant you know that 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 caused us to expend the least amount of energy in hunter-gatherer societies. that only made sense that instead of running down an antelope for dinner, you would just grab that aardvark that was sitting there as a way of vo- avoiding energy expenditure. And so, and so the companies realizing that we by nature are drawn to food that's inexpensive put enormous effort into. Finding ways to knock 10 cents off the price of a box of breakfast toaster pastries, Mm. knowing that our brain will get excited about that.
0: Do the ways in which they manipulate the flavors then uh, take advantage of the fact that we love as much flavor as possible or is it really just about cost?
1: Well, it's so to both. So to as much flavor as possible, too. So so you know, I spent a bunch of time with evolutionary biologists for, mm. for this book, too. And and there were certain things that happened when we started being bipedal walking on two feet as opposed to as, to, as opposed to four. And and one of the things that happened is that we developed an incredible power of smell i mean Mm. we're not quite as good as grizzly bears you know where park rangers joke you you know the bear can tell (laughs) what you wore at your high school the color of your shirt at your high school graduation Uh, just by smelling you right or or bloodhounds but we're pretty darn close and in fact we have two ways of smelling one through the nose one through the mouth, because when uh. you chew or swallow or drink something, the, the flavor um, volatiles will float around in your mouth and then get drawn up into the nasal cavity where the olfactory bulb sits right below the brain and sends powerful signals to the brain. And so so when you talk to these flavorologists at these chemical labs, they'll explain to you that... that you know, the flavor in food is something like 70, I've forgotten the number now, but something like 70% of it is smell versus wow. taste from from the taste buds. So so our natural draw to flavor is, is both for the flavor itself as something exciting, and then the ability of these companies to use these artificial flavorings or natural chemical flavorings to reduce the cost of the food to get us even more excited.
0: Hmm. So for these flavorologists, for these folks at the processed food companies, I'm curious, did you ever ask any of them if they ate the stuff they sell or or if they've gotten addicted to it?
1: Oh, well, um, I don't think I asked that of the flavorologists per se, but I have been so surprised in talking to kind of key officials in the processed food industry To find that so many of them don't touch their own products, either because they Mm. know better from a health standpoint or because they lose control. I spent some time with the former general counsel, the top lawyer for Philip Morris, who, you know, which used to be not only the largest tobacco manufacturer in North America, but for many years, it was the single largest manufacturer of processed foods because it bought the old New York Company General Foods, bunch of icons in the grocery store, and then Kraft And then Nabisco. And the general counsel told me, his name is Steve Parrish, and he said, you know, Michael, I'm one of those people who can smoke one cigarette in a business meeting, put the pack away, and never have any inclination to take it out again until the next business meeting or the next day. But I can't go near a bag of our Oreo cookies without... (laughs) losing control and eating half of the bag. So so yeah. he was one of those many people who didn't touch their own products for fear of, of, of losing control and realizing that he did not have the willpower to, to resist the, the sort of mm. exquisite engineering that goes into these products.
0: Interesting. Yeah, and that's something I, I took away from the book as well is, you know, it's kind of a theme— that might sound boring on the surface, but I found fascinating that I personally pulled from the book are the ownership structures in this industry. Uh, you describe Philip Morris buying up craft at some point, uh, but you also describe how processed food companies themselves uh, in their history have bought up dieting companies. Can you describe a bit of what you found in, in that regard too? Oh my gosh, yes. So, you know, not
1: only are they exploiting our sort of basic instincts for things like cheapness and variety and calories and and speed, convenience, but they're even exploiting our efforts to regain control of our habits. And so back when obesity was starting to climb in this country, starting nineteen eighty none other than Heinz, you know, the ketchup country company, condiment company. It, it also owned, um, a division called Orida potatoes and became, you know, the champion at creating, you know, many varieties of frozen, um, French fries, um, marketing them as a way of turning your kitchen into a drive-in restaurant without having to get in the car and go wait and light anyway. So Heinz realized that it could work both ends of the spectrum. And um, in the 1980s, at the time when obesity was starting to climb, it purchased none other than one of the most popular dieting methods out there, weight watchers. Mm -hmm. Um, And when it did so, the other processed food companies took notice and began buying up other popular dieting methods, including Slim Fast and South Beach Diet and even Atkins. And, and maybe more significantly, even, you know, they went into the grocery store and started creating these diet versions of their products and they put them side by side on the shelf so that Hot Pockets, you know, would have a Lean Pockets right next to it without not very much difference between the two nutritionally. Yeah. But, but, but it was just sort of this, you know, from a marketing perspective, it was just brilliant on the part of the processed food companies because they had us going both directions at different times. And depending how vulnerable or strong we were feeling in terms of motivation, we'd be buying one or other of their of their products.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and this is one of the things I love about the book is how you paint this uh, longitudinal picture of, of how the industry has changed. I've, I just pulled up a couple of articles while, while you were chatting, uh, you know, Heinz buying Weight Watchers for 71 million. And that was 78. And, and you also mentioned that um, the move toward overeating as a s- society happened suddenly starting right. in the early nineteen. 19- 80s, which appears yes. to be around the same time. Why was this time such a pivotal moment?
1: You know, it's a really good question. There were a few things that were happening. And I think it was sort of gradual. Um, what, you know, one of the events that I sort of write about in the book is kind of the huge societal shift when more women began working outside of the home and became vulnerable to the pitch from the processed food companies of convenience that, you know, mm. let us solve the 7 p.m. problem when you and your spouse are coming home and nobody's had time to think about dinner, we will provide that dinner for you. So that was one of the big movements. And then, you know, seemingly overnight one day in the 1980s, it became socially acceptable to eat anything, anywhere, anytime. Parents stopped telling their kids to, you know, to snack, not snack in between meals and snacking became this fourth American meal so that today we're getting more than 500 calories a day through snacking. And, and again, that played exquisitely into the hands of these food companies because they began coming up with products that we could eat with one hand, yeah. um, not paying any attention to them. And, and it's that mindlessness that sort of drives drives mm. overeating on our part as much as anything.
0: Mm. Yeah, and this is, uh, I feel I'm just heaping praise, but I feel the book is uh, deserving of it as well. You know, you write about all these levers that processed food companies take uh, that take advantage of to get us to eat more. Uh, you know, we've chatted about flavor with the flavor houses, uh, the cost as well with the flavor houses, convenience, uh, but variety and calories are a couple of other buttons that they seem to push. I'm wondering if you could walk us through um, those two attributes that these products have, how they have become uh, more varietous and calorie dense over time.
1: Yeah. So again, one of our basic instincts is to like food that's variable, or rather to 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 be able to like food despite you know a wide variability. It's why. We were, or we developed that, you know, as we spread around the globe and had to fall in love with, you know, food as diverse as whale blubber, right? If you're living up in the Arctic, mm-hmm. um, and and so we're attuned and attracted to variety. The companies understand that, and thus, when you go into the cereal aisle or the potato chip aisle or even the pasta sauce aisle. Um, you know, there will be dozens of versions of basically the same thing in different packages, different coloring, different names, different variety, knowing that we'll get excited about this. Some people refer to this as the smorgasbord effect <laughs> where you're walking down the buffet line, your plate is full, maybe it's even your second trip you're full, but you see something new mm. it's exciting. And you'll put it on your plate and you'll find, um, you will find room to, to eat that. Um, calories is probably, of those three things, sort of the cheapness, the variety. I think calories is even more significant, though, when mm. it comes to our trouble with food, because we are designed to be attracted to calories for much of our existence that was a life and death matter and so we have sensors in our gut possibly in our mouth that tell us how many calories are coming in the brain registers that and gets excited about there being more calories not only that but putting on body fat for much of our existence was a really good thing. It enabled us to our brains to grow, to enable us to get through hard times, enable us to have more offspring, more babies, right? Yeah. But what's happened in the last fifty years in this great mismatch between our biology and and the food environment that these companies created? is that they begin packing in these empty calories in snack foods especially, but a lot of their ultra-processed food products um, in a way that excites the brain, you know, inhibits the break in the brain from activating and saying, wait a minute, we think we're getting too much, um, and causes us to overeat unknowingly on, on a daily basis.
0: Mm. How deliberately do you think these companies are engineering their products to get us to eat more is it just a matter of them following the money or what, what do you think yeah i you
1: know I, I i still hesitate to sort of see this as this evil empire that intentionally yeah. set out to make us sick right these are companies doing what all companies want to do which is to make as much money as possible by selling as much product and and in so doing, to make their products as attractive as possible. I mean, if there's, if there's a line between getting us to want more and more of their products and getting us to lose control, you know, I'm not sure that they know where that line is or they've even mm. sort of given thought to that. It's enough to them just to spend all of their waking hours engineering these products to make them irresistible without, without thinking about the consequences.
0: Yeah. Do you think that the industry deserves more scrutiny than it has now? Well, I think it's getting
1: more scrutiny. And I think one of the big questions now is, is, you know, what role can these companies play going forward as more and more people care about what they're putting in their bodies? There was a meeting a couple of years ago in Florida with investors where the heads of the biggest companies got up and confessed that they were losing the trust of consumers. And so they've been scrambling in the last few years to, Mm. you know, try to modify their formulations in a way that would um, cause less concern, you know, in, in us. And in some ways, I think it's made it even harder to go shopping and tell good food from bad food because they're doing some things that... You know, falls into kind
0: of the sinister, cunning arena really easily. Uh, you mentioned something with the nutritional labels too.
1: Yeah, that was that was one of the most surprising things to me because I've been one of those people that advocates that we look more closely at the labels of products, the fine print called the nutrition box, right, yeah. which tells us how many calories are there, and fat, and protein, and da da da. But I had no idea that. Well, two things. One, it's really confusing all that data. I mean, I still can't look at a nutrition facts box and really tell what that means. Yeah, it's like, like a bunch of words
0: to me. Oh a bunch yeah, of words and numbers
1: yeah. and percentages ah. and a lot of like ingredients. <sighs> and it's and it and it's mixed because some of it is telling us we need more calcium, and some of it's it's telling us well we should probably be doing less sugar or something. But so it's like this. Crazy quilt of things. Well,
0: yeah.
1: guess who invented the nutrition facts box? It was not the government regulators or consumer advocates who were supposedly after these companies you know, on our behalf. It was the processed food industry seeing that mm. <clears throat> as a way to... To get us to worry less about what is in their products. And <clears throat> and it kind of it kind of speaks to another basic instinct of ours is that we love information for information's sake. One of the scientists mm. I met calls us infovores. Oh. And it almost doesn't matter what the information is, but but just kind of having all these official looking numbers on the box <laughs> is, is somehow comforting to yeah. us when we look at these. <clears throat> when we look at these products so so yeah that's that's kind of one of the ways the other the other thing that they've been playing with lately is protein because <clears throat> in some nutritional sense protein might be a bit of a wonder kid it, it may slow down your appetite reduce cravings make you feel fuller faster so you so you eat less and so what are the companies have been doing They've been doing things like adding, you know, a few more grams of protein to a sugary cereal and then splashing the word f- protein on the front of the package. Uh-huh. Or fiber, that's another darling of the processed food industry now because there's some sense that it's the fiber in vegetables and fruits that that gets us to slow down, digest better, eat less but the companies have been adding all kinds of crazy crazy fiber some of them manufactured in a laboratory just so they can elevate you know the amount of fiber in that nutrition facts box to um, to again make us a little less concerned about about their products causing us to to lose control from a from an eating habit standpoint
0: and yeah, and that's that was the most frustrating part about you know uncovering a lot of these uh I guess we're all kind of Infovores or whatever the, the word is, you right. know, I was looking at all the stories and studies in the book and it was just so frustrating where, you know, the demand goes to a point where we want more protein. And so these companies say, okay, we found some <laughs> a chemical compound that happens to be called to call protein or whatever. Let's add that to the to the concoction here. And you just imagine somebody pouring a blue chemical into a beaker and that boiling over. It, it just seems so fake. It, is that was that the the takeaway you had from this, or was it something Fake deeper? Fake and also kind of sadly, you know, it's just kind of the sad realism on their
1: part, which is they're they're more hooked on making their products cheap and convenient and variable and and buzzing the brain than we are. Um, and, and just to give you an example, I, I, after my first book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, came out, I got invited by none other than Nestle, oh. the, the biggest company of all, to come talk to their research and development people. How did
0: you feel walking into that, that room?
1: You know, I felt that, like it might have been a trap. In fact, I kind of joked, I think, I think it was my oldest son who was starting to save money for college. Joked that he hoped I hadn't bought a round-trip ticket uh, (laughs) because there's no way they're going to like let me out of there. But but actually, you know, reflecting on that meeting I was talking about a couple years ago, these companies have been scrambling to do things to try to put their best foot forward and regain our trust. And so Nestle was impressing Upon me how they were cutting back on salt, sugar, fat, and doing all these kind of amazing scientific things to to add less of those to their their products. But, but when I said to them, and and Nestle owns the Hot Pocket brand, um, which I think I had called you know a poster child for mindless eating in mm-hmm. in the first book I wrote, salt, sugar, fat, you know, you know, they you know when they said, look, we're getting the salt, sugar, fat down in Hot Pockets, and I said to them. But but what are you doing to stuff those things with broccoli and broccoli rabe and yeah. Brussels sprouts and any number of sort of vegetables, which is what nutritionists say we should all be eating more of? And, you know, I got this blank look on the, on the faces of their food technologists, engineers, um, because that's really expensive to do. And for, mm. for various other reasons that are that are essential to sort of the, the shipping and the storing and the processing of these foods, they're unable to sort of go that critical step. Um, yeah. Which is not just to reduce the bad boy ingredients in their products, but to increase the, the truly good, ingre- good ingredients.
0: Mm. It's, it's fascinating stuff. And, you know, moving to a personal level, did you notice any of your own behaviors? I, I, I'm sure your your own eating uh, habits were pretty good after writing Salt, Sugar, Fat and doing the research around that. Did you notice things continue to change further for you in your relationship with food and putting together this book?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have two kids. Um, the oldest is now grown and is just graduating from college, but the youngest is still home at age 16. And And kind of for us, food became kind of this conversation. Um, obviously, they were pretty leery of me because I'd come home every day with a new you know, journalistic discovery about one of their favorite <laughs> junk foods, right? Well, Dad's eyes, on it again. He's yeah, trying to exactly. get me eat less Doritos. Yeah, you got it. Um, but, but it's funny about kids because when you talk to them about food it, in a political sense, and by that I mean, you know, <clears throat> Do you want to have control over what you value in food or do you want these multinational corporations, you know, telling you what to do and implanting these memories in your brain through their marketing? Kids kind of get that. Um, And so, I mean, I would just love to see schools, you know, reinvent home economics, you know, from this kind of, you know, Political self empowerment perspective, um, and and start up this conversation of food. So, so with that in mind, I think you know I think my kids understand that um, there are health consequences of having a diet that's too dependent on these these ultra processed foods. And yeah. so, for example, this is tiny, but we've been trying to cut back on sugary drinks in our house for years, and we discovered that we can. to plain seltzer instead of soda because the bubbles, for reasons scientists have not yet discovered, are almost as exciting to the brain as the sugar. And and, and so even my 16-year-old can drink plain seltzer and be satisfied by by that, Um, which is really, which is remarkable to me on another level, too, because... I kind of had this realization a while ago that many of these things that the industry uses as, a, as weapons against us, salt, sugar, fat, convenience, inexpensiveness, a variety, are things it stole from us that we used to have. And so, for example, before there was sugary soda, there was plain seltzer, right? Yeah. There's a town in Germany called Seltzer where they've been debating for hundreds of years the merits of the this Mecca. natural spring water or that one. And so... I love this idea of empowering ourselves by turning the tables mm. on the processed food industry and taking back stuff they stole from us to, to, to reclaim it and make it work for us rather than against us.
0: And and that's, what's great about the book is you don't, I I feel some, some books that are in in the same sphere as this one strike a a conspiratorial tone, uh, where it's, it's like these companies are out to get us. Um, but the, you do lay out in a, in a great uh, pattern, just how we're losing control around these foods. Um, and and I, I know, you know, as a, Journalist, uh, you you probably believe that knowledge is power, but you know, right now, maybe a, a note to finish up on is you know a, about two billion people you you write are, are uh, either overweight or fully obese. It, it seems like knowledge can only get us so far. You know, uh, drinking seltzer in, instead of uh, Coca Cola and stuff like that. Like, what what avenues would you recommend to people uh, that they could do? immediately, right now after listening to this conversation, uh, to gain a bit of control?
1: Yeah, so one of the lessons you can draw from the world of drug addiction is is that cravings happen so fast and so hard that whatever your plan for dealing with those is, you need to be executing them before the craving hits. And so, you know, Mm. if your trouble with food is simply that 3 p.m. craving for cookies— No matter what your strategy is, whether it's to get up and stretch or call a friend or try to eat something healthier like a handful of nuts, you need to be doing that at like 2.55, you know, in order to avoid and divert that 3 p.m. craving which mm. will rush to the go part of your brain so fast that it eliminates free will and your your willpower to be able to deal with that. So that's kind of one thing. I mean, the other lesson from drugs too is that the thing that works for so many recovering drug addicts is abstention. And it's 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 one of the ways that food is more problematic than cigarettes, alcohol, or drugs too because we just can't go cold. Hard to abstain from eating food. You can't stop eating food. You could try to abstain from things that cause you to lose control more than others. For a lot of people, that's sugar or refined flour. But even that's like really difficult, um, really difficult to do. I think. I think one of the, for me, one of the one of the most optimistic parts of that is that I think we can learn how to change what we value in food, um, mm-hmm. and not look at it as the companies do, which is immediate buzz the brain gratification yumminess, right? But rather look at something like the pastry in a Starbucks coffee shop and go, you know, how's that gonna how's that gonna be with me two years from now when I'm sitting in the doctor's office and he's looking at my heart or 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 even, you know, how am I gonna look in the bathing suit next summer? Uh, yeah. You know, it's 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 taking more of that Again, sort of changing how we look at these products with what's valuable to us about us and and our health rather than letting the companies tell us what's what's valuable.
0: Yeah. Well, one mindset shift that I took away from this book was... I now no longer see a lot of processed food as food. It's more of a chemical experiment of sorts where you know these variables variety cost, convenience, calories, flavor are all adjusted to be uh, optimally addictive to get me to eat more and uh definitely that abstinence that that anticipating challenges ahead of time is uh, has been huge so thank you for. This book, the, the book is called Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How f- the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Pick up a copy. I, I highly recommend this book. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. The, the question we always finish up whenever we have a guest on the podcast is with the question, uh, what's one thing that you yourself are working on becoming better at right now? Ooh, can it be unrelated to food? Anything. Yeah, anything. So...
1: I'm climbing mountains these days. Oh. Unbelievably, I know, but by but that do of, you mean you're writing another book? No, I'm <laughs> literally climbing <laughs> mountains. I was on, I was on Mount Rainier last week out of out of Seattle. In when a storm hit and the temperature dropped to one degree and the the wind speed was gusting at ninety seven miles an hour, we had to abandon the tents and dig a snow cave. Right, and this oh, is man. training for this is training for even more severe mountains, but. One of my kind of personal things that I do is kind of have this immediate overreaction to situations um. and and sort of express alarm. It usually goes away and I calm down, <laughs> but but that's just kind of my immediate reaction. So we were we were on the mountain doing some training when somebody noticed that somebody's sleeping bag had blown away and was going oh, down the mountain. And I, like, I kind of, like, screamed because I thought it was mine. And, I, you know, I thought it was, like, life or death. And then, you know, and that kind of sets you up, though, for making stupid mistakes. Like, the last thing you want to do is start running down, you know, this icy slope to try to save the sleeping bag. And yeah. so, so I, you know, even though... You know, it's deep in my personality, and I can usually adjust with that kind of panic reaction. I have to be able, I have to find a way to get that under control when mm-hmm. I'm in kind of like that combat uh, situation of being on a on a on a treacherous mountain. So that's the thing I'm working on. Don't ask me how I'm going to do it, Yeah, but but, uh, but I'm going to try. <laughs> God help you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and for the book. Uh, it, it's It's been great. Nice talking to you. So finishing up, becomingbettershow.com is where you can find the corresponding blog article for this episode. There is an article that I wrote up around our conversation because I loved this book so much. I want to spread it far and wide. Thank you so much to Michael Moss for coming on the podcast. Thank you to you for listening. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want, send me a screenshot. I'll send you a podcast postcard. We got those printed recently. Hope you have a wonderful week and we'll see you in a couple Tuesdays. Bye, everybody.